Father God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable unto you, O God. I'm going to read from 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved. And to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. Lord, we ask that as we bring our petitions, intercession, our thanksgiving before you this morning, God, that you would first create in us a clean and pure heart before you, We ask that you would take away and remove anything that would hinder our hearts, our minds, and our spirit to receive the living and active word you have for your remnant this hour. We come to you with thanksgiving, God, for the joy in our salvation. We enter your courts with praise for giving your son as a ransom for many, for us, King Jesus. We are in awe of you, Lord of hosts, God. You are holy, holy, holy. We delight in the changing of seasons and the beauty of your landscape, of the, and the beauty of your handiwork in the landscape around us, God. Position and posture our hearts as we move to a season of thanksgiving to express gratitude to you, Lamb of God, for your provision. And God, you are so faithful. Your faithfulness to the saints, Jesus. We treasure this time as we prepare even now to celebrate your birth, that we are reminded of the one true King, Emmanuel, God, you are with us. Help us not forget, God, that you are with us. You abide in us. You have not forsaken us. Help us to know that and believe, God, that you hear our prayers, Lord. Lord, we celebrate today with you, with our brothers and sisters, God, that were baptized, God. We rejoice alongside them, Lord, and we pray that as they rose from the water, God, that the Holy Spirit would start something new, that your spirit would ignite a flame in their soul, your favor would rest upon them, and your anointing would flow through them. We ask these things before you today, King Jesus, and we give you thanks for all that you have done, that you are doing, that you're going to do, God. You are the Alpha, the Omega. You are the beginning. You are the end. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 
but let's have the kids be dismissed to their time of worship upstairs now. So that would be preschool through um, fifth grade can now make their way upstairs. Parents, if you've checked in, checked them in already, you can send them. Otherwise, you do still need to check them into kids' ministry. And let me just say thank you for being here uh, with us in worship this morning. Um, it's already been a full and beautiful service, and we're just going to continue to worship God through um, opening the Word together and seeing what He has to say to us this morning. A few things to make you aware of um, as we continue. This uh, bulletin will give you the top four or five things that we want you to know coming up on the front page, as well as have a space for you to take notes on the sermon on the back. Um, those main things are that the adult Christmas choir and kids' children's program are starting soon. And there is a sign-up for the kids' Christmas program back on that back table. Anything we have to sign up for, you're going to find the sign-ups in this room on that back table against the wall there. Um, so there is a sign-up for that kids' Christmas program. If you want to be a part of the choir, talk to Jason about that. We do have a fall festival um, on November the 6th that will be here on our campus outside, and uh, that's from 4 to 7. We still need some volunteers, so talk to Rika if you're interested in volunteering for that. Um, but save that date, and we'd love for any of you to be there. Uh, we have another men's breakfast that you can sign up for, just so we know you can come if, you're, if you forget to sign up. But if you sign up, it helps us plan the food better for that. Um, and there's other things, obviously, going on in the life and ministry of the church week to week. Tonight at 5.30 is our typical Sunday night. We'll have some life groups. If you haven't visited a life group uh, and want to join one tonight, come at 5.30 and we'll find a place for you to come and visit. There's uh, three or four that will be meeting this evening on campus. Our kids' ministry is meeting this evening, 5.30 to 7.30, and our youth are meeting 5.30 to 7.30 uh, tonight. So please, we'd love for any of you to be here and be a part of any of those things. And now I'm going to ask you to um, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 8. Um, Meredith texted me this week and said, are you sure you want me to pray this week um, with the baptism service? And I responded, and I said, Mayor, are you sure you're asking me because of the baptism or for some other reason? And she said, no, I'm asking you because of the baptism. The service order will be different, and I'm scheduled to pray. Am I supposed to do it or not? And I was like, oh, I thought you were concerned about the passage I was preaching this week. Because the passage, guys, when we're going to get there. If you haven't read ahead, you're going to know what I'm talking about here in a second. The passage I'm going to talk about is one of those passages that, honestly, can be downright confusing in the way we apply it within our culture today, within our church life, how do we remain faithful to Scripture? How do we live in the days in which God has placed us? And what do we do when we see passages that seem, to the modern mind, outdated or insensitive? What do we do about these passages? 1 Timothy 2 is the most difficult passage in this book to interpret and to figure out how do we apply and live that out as a local church. Each week as we've come into 1 Timothy, I've told you that God has a design for his local church. 
God has in his scriptures laid out a blueprint, not in every single area. He hasn't designed every single nook and cranny of how a local church should function and what to do about every specific issue. But God has given us some broad structures that we are to follow in the organization and operation of a local church. And here's one in 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15, that seems a little bit out of touch. It seems like it doesn't fit in 2022. So how do we approach an ancient book that, doesn't, uh, that our modern culture does not like? So let's read it, and you'll see. If you don't know what I'm talking about now, you're about to see it. 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Anybody uncomfortable yet? You get the tension of the passage? You get why I say these are things that modern ears don't like to hear? You get why there's debate, there's difficulty in approaching this passage? Our task this morning is to take this book, this collection of 66 books with a host of different human authors written in three different languages over the course of hundreds of years in multiple different continents, all 66 books inspired by God. And so we then believe that God is the primary author of Scripture, and God intended everything included in Scripture to be included. And God worked through the human authors to inspire the words he wanted to be heard, not just in that generation, but for many generations later until Christ returned. When we bring that conviction to Scripture, then we've got to handle any and every passage. And that's one of the reasons why. When we approach the preaching ministry of the church, we go through a book of the Bible in order. And, and without skipping verses, without skipping hard passages, confusing passages, but we go through trying to figure out what is God's message from this book. And what is God's message from this chapter, even if it appears difficult? So here's how we're going to unpack it today. We're going to get a little, before we get into the passage, we've got to lay some groundwork. And that groundwork is hopefully going to be helpful in the way any of us interpret other passages. Because this isn't the only hard one, but this is the hard one we're dealing with today. But part one of today is going to be just a few principles on how we apply Scripture, and specifically how we interpret Scripture that is an ancient book full of timeless truths, but written within a particular culture or within particular cultures, 
how do we take those truths, interpret them, and apply them within our own culture? So I'm going to start with two principles of interpretation. And there's plenty more. This is not a full lesson on how you study the Bible and how you interpret every passage of Scripture. But I'm going to give you two principles that have a lot to say about this particular passage. Number one, harmony. By harmony, I mean that when God is the author, we should expect the Scriptures to harmonize. When God is the author that is actually inspiring all the various human authors to write the words that they write in the cultural setting they're writing, we expect that there will be some diversity within the way the human authors write, but that the harmony will be found through Jesus and through God's work as the inspiring voice behind it all. So Paul says things in in ways that are different from how Peter says things, which are different from how John says things, which are different from how Matthew and Mark say things. All of these New Testament books that we have, there's 27 of them written by a series of different authors, all of those books come from different human perspectives with God divinely inspiring it all. So then, when we have passages that seem like they're in confrontation with each other, such as Paul himself in the book of Galatians, he says, there's neither male nor female, neither slave nor free. So Paul says, in Christ, there's no more distinctions between male and female. And then he says, except when it comes to speaking in church, and then the women have to stay silent, and the men have to do all the talking. You've, you've got to ask yourself, it, do those two views, written by the same human author, inspired by the same divine, timeless author, How do we harmonize those things together? So that's the first principle of biblical interpretation, that we need to anticipate that God has a message that is consistent even when we see inconsistencies. That if we work to understand the context, the, the themes, the applications in each particular passage, we can find an underlying consistency. So that's the that's the approach we're taking today. We're gonna see how we harmonize this with other things that God says. But then there's the principle of history. Everything that God says in the scriptures harmonizes together, but everything that God says in the scriptures was written within a particular point in history, was written to a particular culture in a particular historical and cultural setting. And therefore, we have to do a little bit of work. And let me tell you something, that's okay. It's actually... One of the beauties of Scripture, and this is, this is not a very modern idea, okay? The very modern idea is to say, God, give me a list of bullet points and tell me what to do and keep it simple because I have a short attention span because I live in the tech age. But what God has done for us in this ancient book is he has given us a book that is full of his timeless truths, a book that is living and active, a book through which he cuts into our hearts and convicts our hearts, through which he transforms people and brings dead hearts to life through his very words. This is not a simple book, and that's great news. We don't want it to be a simple book. We want it to be a transformative book. And when it's a transformative book, it takes a little bit of work in interpreting some of the difficult passages. And again, it's a good thing, because there's great reward 
from the work of reading and studying the Bible and finding out what is the message that God is giving to us through this passage. So these two principles, that God is the primary author and therefore we should expect the messages from each passage to harmonize together and history, that God has said everything he said to a particular moment in time in history and culture. That leads us to then have to do some work of interpretation of figuring out what is God saying that is a timeless truth? And what is God saying that is written to a particular moment in time, culture, or history? Now, there are three different ways of approaching these questions. There is the very literal approach. The very literal approach is we take everything, everything that Scripture says, in the most literal, in the most simple way possible, and we do what it says. And this sounds really good on the, at the face because it sounds really good to just keep it simple and do exactly what the Bible says and not have to do the hard, heavy lifting of figuring out what cultural applications are going on in the background. Everything is to be interpreted as it is said without any regard for the cultural historical moment in which it was originally said. So let me just give you an example of what happens to this passage when you do that. Not only was Meredith in violation of this passage this morning, every single man in the room was in violation of this passage this morning. Because how many of you, when you prayed at any point today, raised your hands up in your prayers? If we take a, a ultra-literal approach to this, then Paul is telling us, Men, when you pray, you must do so with your hands lifted. And then when we take that to other scriptures, then it goes far beyond this passage. We go into 1 Corinthians, and we had Jason led us through a study of 1 Corinthians this summer, and we talked about the head coverings passage. And, and then we have to say, well, why are women not in our day, in our church, covering their heads as they gather together for worship? Because that's what... 1 Corinthians explicitly says, when we take the ultra-literal approach, we are left saying women cannot speak in church, men must raise their hands when they pray, women cannot braid their hair, and women cannot wear jewelry. And I'm just going to cut to the chase and tell you, I don't think that's the right application of all of this. It's a little bit more complicated than that. We can take the liberal approach. If we don't like the literal approach, we can take the liberal approach. One letter difference and a whole world of difference. The liberal approach says everything in the Bible is written to a particular culture, so when it's written in a particular cultural moment, we have to be a little bit um, distrusting of how it applies into our moment. And so the liberal approach would say that because things are said to a particular culture that is now outdated, we disregard both the cultural setting and whatever the truth is that God's trying to tell us through that. And so what this, the, the liberal approach to this passage would be to say, well, we actually can't know anything about God's teaching on gender and sexuality in this passage because everything in this passage was trapped in this first century context that's so different than ours that we just have to say, in principle, God wants the church to function in order, and in principle, God wants people to pray. Those are our only applications if we're so scared of the cultural moment and so scared of what this is saying, we end up stripping this passage of all of its power. And that approach 
that approach of just saying, well, anything written into a particular culture cannot be transferred over into the 21st century leaves us scratching our heads about how to have a host of different conversations. But here's the danger. If you don't like what this passage says about women in leadership in church, and, and you say, well, that was written into a cultural moment, so therefore I'm going to, I'm going to disregard this passage and say, Paul would say something different if it was written in the 21st century, then you have to ask the question, what do we do about the debates of our day around what gender even is? Is there such a thing as gender? Should gender be defined as two different genders created by God? What, what is and is not appropriate within a sexual relationship, a marriage relationship? All of the questions brought to us by the LGBT movement and revolution cannot be answered by Scripture if we take too liberal an approach. Then we are left with no ground on which to stand about the question of homosexuality, about the question of transgenderism, any of those questions of our day that are so vital for the church to be addressing. Both of these approaches are a little bit easier literalism and liberalism. You just take it at face value and either accept everything it says and woodenly apply it all, or you just sort of say, well, this is really confusing and seems outdated, so I'm going to treat it as if it's outdated. Those are the two easiest approaches. Spoiler alert. Here we go. We're taking the hard way today. Cultural application of timeless truth. See, it's, four, it's five words instead of one word. That just tells you it's going to be harder. Here's what I believe that the scripture does for us, is I believe that those scriptures were written to a particular moment in history and culture, that every word of scripture carries a divine, timeless truth, that God did not accidentally allow Paul, Peter, whoever, to write these words, but rather God was divinely inspiring the authors to say what God wanted them to say. And the applications of those timeless truths did take place within a particular moment in time and within a particular culture of the ancient Near East. But we cannot throw out everything that the Bible says because it took place in the, uh, the culture of the ancient Near East. Rather, we have to do the hard work of finding out what is the timeless truth. So every passage of the scripture contains a timeless biblical truth that must be applied with wisdom to each particular culture. So then the scriptures maintain their authority over our lives, and the church has the task of taking great care to steward these timeless truths that the, that the scriptures reveal and find, finding the way to apply them within a particular culture. Okay, so this is the approach we'll take. Cultural application of timeless truth. You separate the first century context from the timeless truth that God's trying to, trying to tell us here, and then we take that timeless truth and we put it into a 21st century context and say, how do we apply this timeless truth today? And we're going to take that approach with the three different instructions from this passage. Because most of what you heard was probably about women not speaking in church. But there's actually three different parts to this passage. There's verse 8, men must pray with hands lifted up. There's 9 and 10, that says women can't wear jewelry or braided hair. And then there's 11 through 15 that deals with women and their speaking role and authority within the church. So we're going to take this approach 
of finding timeless truth and applying it to our culture from each of these three sections. We'll start in verse 8. Verse 8 very clearly says, I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So I already said it. The literal approach is men must pray, and it's actually wrong to pray for men to pray without their hands up. This is a wrong posture of praying if we take the overly literal approach. The liberal approach is saying, well, prayer is important, but nothing about the way we pray can be known because this passage is so steeped in a particular culture. But let's do a little bit more work here. What's the timeless truth we have in this passage? In every place, men should pray. Now, what is the cultural setting of the first century that influences the second half of this verse that says men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling? The reference to holy hands, uh, it, Meredith actually actually tipped her, the hat to this a little bit today in her prayer. The reference to holy hands reminds us of a great number of psalms. Psalms 24 says that when you enter in to pray in the presence of God, you are to enter in with holy hands. You are to lift your hands in holiness. And so many psalms speak of not just a purified heart, but clean hands and a pure heart. Why is that? Because within the context of Judaism, when you would enter into the temple to pray, what you did before you entered in was you went through the cleansing rituals. So when you enter into the temple, your hands are dripping. Your feet are dripping. They're wet because you've cleansed them outside as you enter in. And that cleaning that you did outside was a physical manifestation of a spiritual reality that you were supposed to be experienced as you entered into God's sanctuary. That you confessed your sins and that you washed your hands and your feet before you entered into God's presence so that nothing would be distracting you from communing with God in your worship in the temple. So when in Psalm 24, people are called to lift up their holy hands, it is a posture of worship. It's also a posture of displaying clean hands. And so the cultural application here is that those first century um, Gentile believers adopted this practice of Judaism where they said, when we enter into pray, we should have clean hands, which means we should confess our sins. We should not be walking into worship, not walking into the presence of God, carrying the bondage of sins that we have not confessed, that we have not addressed on our backs. We walk in lifting our hands to show that they're clean. So what's the timeless truth that men should do and how do we apply it in the, first, in the 21st century? We say prayer is important and before you pray, confess your sin. Don't come into prayer, don't come into worship carrying the burden of unconfessed sin. Also, I think it's pretty applicable in the first century and the 21st century that it's probably a good thing to avoid anger and quarreling in your prayer. If you've ever heard somebody pray and pick a fight with somebody in their prayer, you know how awkward it is. And y'all, it actually happens. You've probably heard that prayer where somebody is praying for something and maybe against someone else in the room in that prayer. And you know, it can be a little bit awkward and uncomfortable. It's exactly what Paul is talking about here. In your prayers, or in your public prayers in particular, don't try to score your points on your opponent. 
And this is what the Pharisees, that's what the Pharisee did in Jesus' story. Praise God that I'm not like that man, a sinner, over there. That's what Paul's talking about. So the timeless application for us is when you pray, confess your sin, and don't use prayer as a weapon against somebody else. But lay that burden aside, confess in the presence of God, and then enter into worship receiving the forgiveness that comes. That's a pretty cool application. I like that application. It makes sense to me. So let's go on, because that's kind of the easiest one. Verse 9 and 10. The scripture says, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty, self-control, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Literalism. We take the literal approach. There's a lot of women here today that are violating this. We take the liberal approach. We don't have much to say about it. We take the liberal approach and we say this passage is so steeped in cultural baggage that we don't know what to say, but I guess good works are good. That's about all we get out of there, that women who profess godliness should emphasize good works. But the cultural baggage, we have to let that go. So let's take this third approach, the timeless or the cultural application of a timeless truth. The timeless truth is actually really simple here. Women should adorn themselves for godliness. And the description is with good works, modesty, self-control. There's nothing inherently first century about that information, that women should adorn themselves with godliness, modesty, self-control, and good works. Now, in the first century, the cultural application had to do with braided hair and earrings. Because in the first century, women, were, women that wore earrings or braided hair were seeking to draw attention to themselves. And Paul was addressing a specific problem in a specific context of women that were trying to draw attention to themselves and distract from the worship of the church through appearance. And so, yes, Paul is giving an instruction that the hairstyles, jewelry, and the lack of modesty became a distraction within the early church of Ephesus. There's a particular cultural setting of this kind of early ancient feminist movement within the city of Ephesus that you can read all about called the the New Women Movement that was connected in part to the temple of Artemis, who's a female god, a female false god that was there in Ephesus. There's all sorts of cultural stuff going on in first century Ephesus that was influencing this movement and this tendency for women to do their hair up big and to wear earrings to draw attention to themselves and to say they were no longer in doing that they were no longer under the authority of the men in their lives and they could do what they wanted it was a sign of rebellion and a desire to draw attention to themselves so then what's the cultural application for today in our culture today nobody's going to be offended by you wearing earrings to church or braiding your hair to church but the cultural application of the timeless principle is that women and men should pursue modesty, self-control, focus more on adorning ourselves with godly living than outward appearance. Paul was addressing a particular issue with women in ancient Ephesus. But in our day, I can say the same timeless truth could apply just as easily to women and to men. That if you seek to dress yourself in a way to constantly draw attention to yourself, to be noticed, that's a, that's a spiritual problem. 
if you're always wanting to be noticed for your looks and not for your character, that is a spiritual problem. And therefore, we need to apply this passage and say, women, let go of the bondage that society puts on you to look a certain way, to dress a certain way, to carry yourself a certain way, and find comfort in being created in the image of the, of the God who has loved you and who desires for you to walk in godly character and not be burdened by the pressure of a physical appearance, the way you dress, the way you look. It's a message to both men and women to let go of cultural trappings of what you should and should not look like, what you should and shouldn't dress like, to be modest and, and not provocative in your dress, to not be gaudy in your dress, but to be, but there's no problem with dressing nice, there's no problem with, with dressing, um, there's no problem with buying nice clothes, nice jewelry, but if you are trying to draw attention to yourself, trying to get people constantly look at you, look at me, look at this expensive stuff I'm wearing. That's the spiritual problem that is a timeless truth. We still struggle with it in the 21st century, but the 21st century application isn't, isn't earrings and braided hair. So this one means that acceptable standards of modesty and acceptable standards of dress vary. Every generation, even a couple times within a generation, Things change as we look at styles and what is appropriate within a culture. But Paul's clear, clear um, command here, clear instruction here, is for women to cultivate godliness over physical appearance. There's nothing wrong with making that application to the men in the room too. Cultivate godliness over your physical appearance. Now, the last one, verse 11 through 15 let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. It's hard to even know which verse in here is, is the most offensive to the modern mind. Verse 11 starts, starts out hot. Women learn quietly with all submissiveness. But verse 15 is a woman is saved through childbearing? That's hard to swallow too. But it's the, it's the timeless word of God. So we've got to figure out, is there anything for us to glean from this passage and how do we do it? Literalism, women must be quiet in church. We know what that means. Liberalism, this passage again, so steeped in cultural baggage. There was a particular cultural view of women in the first century that, that this passage was written into. Therefore, we don't have to transfer over that cultural view of women, and we can define these things differently. I think there's a different way forward here. So let's look at the first century. Again, within the new women movement of ancient Ephesus, there's a group of women uh, for whom it had become a practice to not just draw attention to themselves physically, but to actually interrupt public gatherings to try to display their attention or their intelligence to draw attention to themselves. And so here Paul is writing into a context of having disruptive women in the church that were drawing attention to themselves, not because they wanted to learn, not because they wanted to talk about the truths of the gospel, but because they wanted to distract 
They wanted to show that they didn't have to live under the authority of the men. So let's look at the two parts here. Verse 11 and 12 actually have two prohibitions and two commands, okay? And what I mean by that is uh, verse 11 and 12 say that women cannot teach and women cannot have authority. Those are both in verse 12. Verse 11 says that women must learn quietly and with submission. And so we need to, we need to kind of define this a little bit better here and say teaching is clearly related to the silence and authority is related to submission. And so let's ask the question between teaching and being silent and, and um, not having authority and being submissive, where is the timeless truth and where is something that is said particularly to a particular culture? Remember, in, again, in the context of Judaism, women would not just learn in silence, but actually the growth and the teaching of women was, was, un, was not enforced, was not prioritized within the Jewish worship that the church had come into that, that period of time. And so the timeless truth here has to be one that says that authority is important. There has to be a theological truth in here that is timeless, and let me tell you why. Because verse 13 is timeless. If you want to throw it all out and say it's all about the first century and we can't apply any of it today, then what in the world is Paul talking about with verse 13? Why does the order of creation matter? Here's what I believe. I believe Paul wants you to read this with Genesis in mind. What happens in Genesis 1 when God created the male and female, when God created man out of the dust of the ground and then gives man a task to do, commissions the man to leadership, and then when a helper is not found suitable for the man, then he creates the woman out of man. There is some intentionality in the way God creates. The job, the task given to the man was given before the woman was created. So what does Genesis have to say about this? The theological explanation here is key. Adam was created first. Why? I don't know. But God did it. Could God have created the woman first and then created the man out of the woman? I, I, I guess. I don't, I don't know. I don't know why he did it that way. But that's what he did. Created Adam, gave him a task, then he created the woman as the helper for that task. The woman was formed as a reinforcement to add strength, not a simple helper. The word for helper actually is a word for military reinforcement in Genesis. That The man was not strong enough on his own, so God gave him additional strength in the woman. But the strength added by the woman does not take away the leadership that the man was given in that passage. And then let's take it out of the church context and look at the home. Multiple times throughout the New Testament, God tells us, that the man is the head of the wife, that the man is given the primary responsibility, the primary leadership function within the home, within the marriage. And so why not do the same in the church? Because so many times, God and in the scriptures, the home and the church are seen as equivalent. The church is just a big home. It's just a bigger family. And if the man is the head of the household in the in the in the in the local family, then man is the head of the church, or then a group of men would be the head of the church. 
There's so many difficult things that oppose the view of modern culture on men and women in the home and in the church, but they're there. And and in some way, we have to wrestle with not just this passage, but with Ephesians, which tells us that women should submit to their husbands, while also telling us that we should all live in mutual submission to each other. The scriptures are there, and the scriptures are telling us I've already told you what the timeless truth is, whether you know it or not. The scriptures are telling us that God has commissioned authority in the home and in the church. And the male, the husband, is the head of the household in the home. And so God has commissioned men in the primary leadership role of authority within the church as well. God is a God of order who organizes society according to the structures of authority and leadership that he defines. Now, here's the timeless truth, that God has called men to serve in authority in the home and in the church. How do we apply that? Here's what I'm going to tell you that is probably going to be controversial. Actually, everything I've said is controversial. Why am I even saying that? Um, What I think is happening here and why I told Meredith to pray today is that in the first century in Ephesus, in that particular context, a woman praying in church, a woman speaking in church, would have been seen as a usurpation of man's, of the man's authority in the church. And I don't see it that way in the 21st century. I think that's part of the cultural application of the first century that's different in the 21st century. The timeless truth is that men should be in the role of authority within the church. And we'll see next week as we, or two weeks from now, when we jump into 1 Timothy 3, that I believe scripture, and this, this has been the position of this church since its foundation, that the role of pastor and elder is reserved for men in the New Testament. Men should be in the role of spiritual authority according to the New Testament. And so, men can serve in that role of spiritual authority and not violate that role of spiritual authority by allowing a woman to pray in a church, by allowing a woman to sing a song on a stage, by allowing a woman to, to serve in any number of ways, even teaching ministry as long as that ministry is under the authority of the pastors and elders of the local church. The timeless truth, men are to serve in the roles of authority, spiritual authority in the church. And women are to use their gifts respecting God's desired authority structure for the church. So women can have any number of incredible gifts. Teaching, leading, worship leading, administration, there's so many public gifts that women can have that need to be used within the local ministry of the church. But God, in 1 Timothy 2 and in 1 Timothy 3, is telling us that the authority role, the responsibility, the spiritual authority role is reserved for men. But then we've got this hurdle. The end of the passage is still a hurdle, okay? What I'm telling you is that the timeless truth in this passage is that men should serve in the authority roles. The cultural application is that in the 21st century, we should apply that in whatever way can, can affirm that women are highly gifted by the Spirit of God and useful in ministry, but serve under the authority of the elders. And that does not necessarily have to mean that we require women to be silent in church or never speak from the stage, never speak publicly. 
That was a first century thing in Ephesus that doesn't have to be a 21st century application of the timeless truth of authority and authority structure. But then we've got verse 14. Why in the world is Paul meddling with this issue of the, women, of the woman being deceived first? What is that problem? This passage has been used to say that the reason men should be pastors and elders is that women are by nature more easily deceived. I do not believe that to be true. I do not believe that makes any sense within the context of this passage and the greater emphasis that Paul is making here. Paul, elsewhere in this category of books, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, is telling women to teach children and is telling women to teach other women. And if Paul's concern with men, men's, or with women serving as elders is that women are easily deceived, then why is he having women teach anybody? That makes no sense. It also doesn't make sense with the passage in Galatians which says, in Christ, there is no distinction between men and women. That means there's no distinction within the eternal state which in the offer of salvation. Men and women can just as easily, freely receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and enter into the eternal kingdom. So we cannot say, I will not say, it makes no sense to say that what Paul is saying is that women are more easily deceived than men. That's not what this passage says. But what Paul is referencing in verse 14 is again Genesis 3. Adam was given the role and the responsibility for leadership, and Satan knew that, and Satan twisted God's words and tried to turn the woman into the leader. And when Satan turned the woman into the leader, things went wrong. And when Satan twisted it, that was not, it was not the woman being prone towards deceit and the man, if Satan would have challenged the man, it wouldn't have been a problem. That's not what that passage is saying. What the passage is saying is when the woman acted as leader, that's how Satan got a foothold within the, the, that marriage relationship of Adam and Eve. So the man needs to step up, needs to be the leader, needs to speak clearly what God did and did not say. Because God gave a command to the man and then Satan quit, twisted the command to the woman. And you go back and read it. Did God give that same command to the woman? God gave it to the man. The man shared it with the woman. Satan questioned what God said and was able to deceive the woman because the woman didn't have first-hand knowledge of what God had actually said to the man. That's the way that whole passage, that's the way that whole passage works. And the man sits there and watches it happen, does not correct the serpent, does not correct his wife, and gets twisted up in the whole thing. So verse 14 is again about authority, that God wants, because of his divine design, wants the man to serve in the role of authority and leadership. What about being saved through childbirth? Still offensive. We're still there. We've, we've dealt with some of the problems, but we're still offended at women being saved through childbirth. Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 has this incredible prediction. The fancy word for Genesis 3.15 is the proto-angelion, which is a fancy word for saying the first gospel. Because in Genesis 3.15, there is a promise. There is a promise that the serpent would strike at the heel of the woman. There would be a descendant, the descendants that would come through the woman would be persecuted by that serpent but that one day a descendant from the woman would come and would crush the head of the serpent. And while God is giving the woman this 
standard of you are going to suffer because of sin entering the world. Childbearing will be hard. And the hope he gives to the woman in predicting the difficulty of childbearing is that one day, one child will be born that will one day crush that serpent and defeat the greatest enemy of the woman and the man. And in all of this, if you see it and you read it within the context of Genesis 3 and in Genesis 3, 1 through 15, you see that the child to be born is the savior of the world. And women are saved through childbearing in Genesis 3, 15 and 1 Timothy 2, 15. Let me tell you something else. Men are saved through the child that is born. And so it's the same path of salvation for any of us, male and female, that though the, the, the path to bearing a child is full of pain and difficulty, there is great beauty in a child being born, and there is great hope because Christ was born. So then, how do we apply this passage today? Here's our cultural application for the 21st century. God's church needs to, must, has to, however strongly one of you said it, we are required to stand against the cultural trends of our day. We need to demonstrate clearly that God created male and female differently. You never thought that was going to be a question. But we need to say that God created male and female, and he created them differently. And not only did he create them differently, he created them to live in order and he created with an authority structure he desires for both the home and a church. But can a woman speak in a church? Yes. Speaking in a church in our culture doesn't demonstrate a woman taking authority over a man. Can a woman pray? Can a woman wor- lead worship? Yes. And so, it, but then the, the next question, can a woman serve as an elder or pastor? No. Based on this passage, based on 1 Timothy 3, the historic understanding of this church and of, and of the historic church, God has reserved, according to his wisdom and understanding in a way I can't fully define and answer all of the questions for, God has desired the church to function in this particular way with men in the leadership role. So there's the application for us. What do we do now? Let me make it real simple and, and kind of narrow it out or kind of broaden it out for all of us. The first thing we do, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, is we pray. Because this passage started with a clear directive to pray. And with with prayer, he emphasized the men because, again, in the context he was talking about in the worship of the local church in Ephesus in the first century in which he didn't want the women to take authority and be a distraction. And I'm going to tell you, men and women, we want both of you to pray here. And we want you to pray in your homes. We want you to pray without ceasing. And we want you to pray, according to Scripture, with a purified heart. When you enter into worship, let go of the burdens of the sins that you have committed, the, the, the distractions that have come up to this point in your life and in your week, and you come into the presence of God with a purified heart. Men and women both seek proper adorning of godliness, of good works, modesty. We're going to see in the, as 1 Timothy moves on that God's qualifications for those who serve in leadership are so strong, so hard. God wants his people to demonstrate godly character. Men and women both. 
And so seek proper adorning. Focus less on your outward appearance and focus on what, is God, on what God is saying and doing in your heart to renew your heart. We embrace God's design. Women, embrace your design as a woman. Embrace your femininity as men embrace your masculinity because God created us different and that's a really good thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a proper thing to see God's design as different. And finally, everyone, brothers and sisters, let me go ahead and ask the band to come up. Brothers and sisters, find your place to serve. The last thing I want today is somebody to hear this passage, to hear this sermon, and say, I don't know how, to, how I'm supposed to serve because I'm a woman and I thought I was supposed to teach and I, I don't know how to teach. People ask me when they ask me about my view on this question, well, what about your daughter? Guys, I baptized my daughter today. She's 10 years old. She's gifted. She's amazing. She has so much wisdom for her age. She has great insight into the word. And let me tell you a secret. She can teach. And she's taught me. And I've learned more about the scriptures because of my little girl. Because God has spoken through her in her simple understanding and her simple knowledge of the scriptures. So I'm not going to hold to an interpretation that says a woman could never teach a man anything about the scriptures because I've been taught by a 10-year-old little girl. And so women, young women, old women, please teach. Use your gifts. And if you have questions about this sermon and how to use those in the church, come and talk to me. I'd love to have those conversations. Men, step up and take your leadership role in the home and in the church. The challenges we face, again, if we lose the battle in figuring out what, how God has created man and female differently, we lose a lot of ground in today's culture. We can't afford to lose that ground because the kingdom of God is continuing to grow. The kingdom of God is continuing to expand. The days are evil, but we preach a timeless gospel. And so let's stand up and let's take God's word seriously church. Find your gift and use it. Serve somewhere because every single one of you has a place to serve in this church, in the kingdom of God, for his glory and for his kingdom. So now I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to continue to worship. We're going to continue to sing. And I want every single one of us to ask the question, God is all of your beauty, with all of your grace that you have shown. As I worship you today, Father, where are you calling me? What's the next step to take the beauty of your gospel to another heart, to another life? Father, I pray that as we sing, that you would meet with each one of us. Show us your beauty. Show us your grace in a fresh way.
human history and in our lives and in our families and in our church. Father, as we reflect on the difficulty of, of applying scriptures from a book that is so old, written in such a different cultural moment, Father, we glory in that, that the timeless nature of your word and your scripture holds true you have truly given us a book that speaks into every period of history, speaks into every cultural moment, speaks to every nation, tongue, and tribe. You have given us a book that presents you and who you are and all that you have done. And God, we praise you for that. In the difficulty of living out your word with a character that reflects you, Father, we ask for your provision, and we ask for your spirit to guide us and to lead us. Father, now send us out by your spirit as your ambassadors for your kingdom. In the name of Jesus, our risen Savior, amen. Now remain standing as you receive the blessing from the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.